Hello, my name is Chen. And my name is Sam. It's Saturday, the 24th of October, 2020, and this is Ballot to Talk About. Hey Chen, how is it going? It's going good, thanks. It's the end of another very exciting week in politics. Is there anything other than an exciting week in politics? <laughs> well, well, certainly not for the next few weeks, I reckon. No. So today we're going to be taking a deeper dive into the main event, the highly turbulent and very consequential US presidential election. We'll be focusing our chat on the two main battleground areas, the Midwest and the South. And we'll also be talking about some of the key themes and stories as we head into the home stretch of the campaign. But first, Chern, what are some of the main non-US news that's been happening in the world of elections this week? Well, last weekend was obviously the Bolivia election. We previewed it slightly. Well, I can tell you that this week, um, the former finance minister, Luis Agri, has won quite handsomely, actually. So he won 55% compared to 29% for former president Carlos Mesa. So he's left-leaning. He's from the representative party called movement for socialism which i think gives away which political leading he lies on um the big question now is actually whether former president Evo morales who was going to run for a fourth term this election is basically a rerun of when Evo morales tried to run for a fourth term and there were a lot of protests against him which forced him to step down the question is whether given his former finance minister is there will he return he has downplayed speculation of a major role for him so we shall see but the main thing is that this is a rebuke for the current conservative government, which took over following Morales' ouster. Now, you could argue that part of it was they took over just before COVID hit. So they couldn't really do much apart from trying to respond to the pandemic. But there was a lot of anger that the fact the election was postponed once and also about the virulent anti-party line they took. They were fed up with President Morales, but not necessarily with the program he initiated. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of support for his pro-rural, poor, poor, poor policies, but just not, just had to be implemented by somebody else. As well, today, we're, we're recording this, and we didn't realise this, but today is the British Columbian state election in Canada. And the reason why the British Columbia state election, so we're going to mention it, is because this will be the second election in a row, which if the ruling New Democrat Party, which is currently a minority, if they gain a majority tonight, it is even more likely that the Liberals on a national level, which is led by Justin Trudeau, will call a snap election and try and get a majority government. New Brunswick, which is a province on the eastern side, is um, went from minority to majority. Um, here, in the, the New Democrats, led by Premier John Van Hogan, is trying to also go from minority to majority. So Justin Trudeau is kind of trying to make it third time lucky. Mm -hmm. He tried to, because um, Sam, usually in these cases, if you want to fall a government, it has to be a motion of no confidence or the yeah, budget. He narrowly avoided fall. a motion of no confidence this week, didn't he? Well, you see that. What happened is that he made a parliamentary motion setting up a committee to be a vote of no confidence. So it's, it was very like bizarre because it's not a budget or anything really major. It's a parliamentary committee. Granty was investigating a liberal scandal um, mm -hmm. involving giving improper contracts to some of his mates. But still, it seemed to me a very flimsy excuse to try and get an early election. Um, so just a little summary is that right now, 
before exit polls come in is that there are 41 liberals now the liberals are not affiliated to the national liberals so they are kind of like in between this kind of center-right despite being called liberals so there's the center-right liberals and the center-left new democrats both have 41 seats each and the greens have two so it's tied it's also it's really tight you have 85 seats you need 43 seats to gain a majority and it's first past the polls very simple the polls suggest that the new democrats are hovering around 49 percent and 50 percent which is about 10 points up and the liberals have dropped six the greens have dropped a bit but really so on paper it looks very much likely that they're going to coast to election victory and the question is of course their margin as well so we got an election this week which we'll probably we'll cover the results next week and next week as well is the queensland state election as well um, another state election fought by two women and anastasia palaszczuk she is the, trying to be the first woman in australian history to win three terms and uh, because as, you, as i'm sure you know women tend to take over when the situation is very dire. You know, Jacinda Ardern took I'm over sure at Judith the last Collins minute. Judith Collins can attest to that as well. Yeah, Judith Collins as well last week. Theresa May, frankly, also you could argue, took over when Brexit was really start when Cameron basically decided to give up. Um, so she's trying to win three terms and become the longest serving female head of government throughout Australia. Deb Frecklington, who is the leader of the centre-right Liberal National Party, She's trying to be the first woman to lead to uh, the centre-right LNP to become premier. Unsurprisingly, COVID has dominated the election campaign and quite similar to um, Queensland where COVID basically transformed the government. Labour was on, so Anastasia Palaszczuk represents Labour. They've been in power since 2015. They were likely to lose the next election if not for COVID. Largely because I'm sure many, and we're going to talk about this possibly in future episodes, how the centre-left responds to the fact that its traditional working-class base look at areas like coal mining as jobs, but its city base looks mm -hmm. at it from an environmental point of view, and there's a tension between both groups. So she had to try and straggle both of those, and it looked like it was a struggle in which she was going to lose, apart from COVID. Queensland is known in Australia as God's own country. Now, as I'm sure as a fellow Yorkshireman, you can attest to what that means. And one of the things they cheated quite early on was to close the borders, which obviously, and it's turned out to be a very popular move. So that probably saved it. So it'd be really interesting to see whether in election next week, there will be this kind of like uh, regional effect because Queensland is a highly tourist dependent country. So in the regional areas where the Great Barrier Reef is the biggest tourist income drawer, whether there'll be a backlash from the closed borders, but in the Southeast, whether there'll be gratitude towards her for getting COVID to virtually zero. Mm -hmm. So that'll be interesting to watch. The LNP, in a sign that they're probably not going to win, has in the last few days tried to run a policy of youth curfews. So if you are a youth, of a certain a teenager of a certain age, you can't go out after a certain day as part of this law and order message. To me, it speaks of desperation. So currently, Labour has 48 seats in a parliament of 93. So they only have a majority of two, which is not a lot. So it is possible at this stage that Labour could likely form government, but they will have to rely on the crossbench. Now, there are six crossbenchers. Um, if Labour gets around 44, 45, they could probably get there quite easily, given that there's a Green there and an Independent. But it, so, so, the, so, the, 
smart money now is on a minority, but labor is likely to be back, which is astonishing, really, in the sense that, and this is a astonishing fact, labor is governed in Queensland at the state level continuously since 1989, um, apart from 1996 to 1998 and 2012 to 2015. So five years out of since 1989, they have governed consistently, which is 26 years in government. It's, it's also, a, and considering Queensland is usually not, a, it's quite a conservative state, that is astonishing. But all these, all these, um, all these little um, issues bubbling up here, the, um, one of the things that was um, fight is over debate timings, um, because then there was a, there was, there was a bit of um, to and fro, but when to hold uh, the leaders' debate between each other. And the other debate that took place was, of course, in the United States, which was the supposed to be the third, but actually was the second presidential debate between Biden and Trump. I know you watched it, Sam. What did you think? What happened then? I did, yes. So it was the final debate, and if you will, the final set piece of this turbulent presidential election. We can officially now say we're in the home stretch of all home stretches um, with just 10 days to go now. They talked as expected about COVID-19, the economic response in particular, but also unlike the first debate, they had, I mean, substantive is probably an exaggeration, but a discussion about foreign policy and climate change, which was nice to see, and also race relations, of course. The tone was absolutely different from the first debate where it was Interruption City but as we talked about earlier, Chern, that was from an extremely low bar from the first debate. I wonder, though, how much of the media narrative that Trump performed better, because it was it was a feature for the next day or so, whether that yeah. actually, whether that was actually more powerful than the fact that Biden won, was yeah, perceived Trump, to have won Trump a bit. was definitely a lot tamer in this debate. Um, but I thought one of the notable things was he still maintained relentless talking points that you would expect to see probably not even on Fox News. They were that conspiracy theory based. I mean, a lot of conversation about Hunter Biden and this laptop that they've discovered. And I'm not I'm not exactly sure how much that cuts through with ordinary Americans. I'm not sure. How many people died yesterday in the United States? Well, like... exactly. They, and they broke their records for cases as well, twice, I think, this week. And I did read that the most Googled word during the debate was wages. Interestingly, it's the economy stupid, as people always say. Maybe that's what is, is happening now again. Um, Biden is widely regarded to have performed quite well versus his previous performances. But what I thought was particularly notable was his deliberate attempt to distance himself from his primary opponents, particularly of the left. Uh, Trump was trying to frame Biden as this socialist puppet but Biden was deliberately saying, particularly on fracking and on healthcare, he notably tried to distance himself saying Trump thinks he's running against someone else, but he's running against Joe Biden. Joe Biden is not pro-fracking, but definitely not anti-it. Um, and on healthcare, he was trying to deliberately distance himself from universal healthcare. So I thought that was quite interesting, but obviously is an attempt at gaining swing voters who probably don't have extreme opinions on these issues. But I thought that was interesting. I have to say, uh, the, the Trump campaign's pushing of Hunter Biden is really interesting to me because the fact that Fox News, which is usually their usual mouthpiece, is Even not running Fox with News it. Even Fox News didn't want to exactly. run with 
I mean, if Fox News very is bizarre. It's, it's, it, it, to me, it seems like an attempt to rerun the 2016 campaign by saying, we have a scandal, it's based on emails, but it's just I, I just don't think it's landing this time. I might have egg on my face in two weeks' time, but I just don't see this line landing at all. Like you, I, I find it very bizarre. It's just that Trump seems surprisingly quite online. So it, it then becomes a case of... Is, well, largely because nowadays with partisanship, most Republicans will vote Republican. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he's focusing on these issues to cater to his Trump vote online is actually very interesting to yeah, me. Yeah, and as you say, some of these issues are things that even the most pro-Trump media doesn't want to play. I, I find quite bizarre. I suppose I think the biggest thing about the debate is in the end, even though Trump did better than a lot of people said, and I agree with you, it's a low bar. It's, it's gone to the point where this is probably his last shot. Yeah. And it probably would have only changed up if Biden messed up or made yeah. a significant gaffe. He tried to push this thing about fracking and the environment. But I looked at his statement. It wasn't, frankly, very controversial. I think most Americans believe that there has to be a transition mm-hmm. away from oil. It's just a matter of how. It probably is a lot slower than the left wants it. But it, to me, it sounds like a very generic support for the environmentalism. There, yeah, there was no think, Green New Deal or anything or banning fossil fuels or anything like that. No, and I think, as you said, this was one of the last opportunities with it being the, the last set piece of the campaign to change things. And I'm not convinced that the president had enough of a clear victory, if he had a victory at all, to change the dynamic. And as we'll talk about later, 52 million Americans have already cast their ballots. So... Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. And I think the, the the interesting one I was curious about is the fact that wages was the biggest talking point, actually. Yeah. And you know, it's always it always comes down to that question epitomized so carefully in 1992. You know, it's the economy, stupid. Mm-hmm. And you know, Republicans and Trump have long held an advantage in economic polling. I mean, but you know, the Quinnipiac poll recently put Biden up by five, which is starting to whether there's a swing against. Trump for that and was all you know for so many months we often the polls have often showed that you know Trump and the Republicans last ace in the card was the economy and his handling of it well well, largely Obama gave him the foundations but he was able to take credit for it and I think overall right now as we head into the final stretch I think one of the things which is causing people a lot of uncertainty or concerns we all remember 2016 we all remember, you know, oh, Clinton's going to waltz to victory. We all remember that. And so therefore, why should we trust polls now more than given that we, we both remember Brexit, you know, and, and then Trump's victory a few months after that? Why do you think we should trust polls now, given what happened four years ago? So I think there's two big issues going on here. Um, one of them is because of that raft of events, as you mentioned, Brexit, Trump's election, and even the 2017 UK general election, polling companies have gone the extra mile in trying to become more accurate, especially in um, their sample sizes for likely electorates, um, their breakdown for demographics. They're being very, very specific. And I think the second thing is that people are much more conscious in this cycle in the US that the state level polling is much more significant than the national level polling. We talked about this the other day that in 2016, 
a lot of the narrative was about Clinton's leader over Trump nationally. And actually, if you drill down to the swing state polling, I know Clinton had a lead and there, there was a polling error in 2016. Clinton had leads in most of the swing states, but they weren't as they weren't as large as 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 it seemed on the national level, at least they were they were quite a bit out of step of the national lead, would you say? Well, I think the biggest difference to me is that Biden has consistently, even internationally, had a five in front of it, which Clinton rarely did, um, particularly towards the latter half of the when when really people started thinking of the race. And that is significant. And the national ballot has hardly moved. Now, it's seven points, but still it's hardly moving. That is saying something. Yeah, um, I think I think there's something going on here that we are quite familiar with in the UK from the differences between the 2017 and 2019 general elections, um, which is that in the 2017 election, like the 2016 presidential election, the combined vote share of the two main parties is a, was a lot lower than it is in the most recent example, which on the surface, firstly, means there are a lot more undecided voters so the potential for a late shift is there, existed in 2016 and 2017, which we didn't, com we weren't completely aware of at the time, but certainly are in hindsight. But in 2019 and in this presidential cycle, the number of undecided voters is quite small. So unless people who had previously in polling committed to vote for Biden or Trump go the other way, you're not going to see significant swings. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen such consistent and stable polling leads. Well, we said we're going to have to find out that that. But... Yeah, and my, my final point on the polling issue, which I think will lead us nicely into our wider discussion of the presidential election is, I think another difference, a key difference between the 2016 race and this race, is just the volume of states that are being closely observed as potential toss-ups. I think is much larger than in 2016. I mean, we've got states this time like Georgia, to a certain extent, Texas, states in the south, Ohio's much more on the map, and Iowa this time, which Clinton, the Clinton campaign was hoping to be able to be mildly competitive in. But Biden has a realistic chance of winning those states, whereas four years well, ago... Well, it's an important... I, I remember the Clinton campaign... You know, they, they sent Michelle Obama to, you know, one of the star Democrat orators and get out the vote people to Arizona a couple of times. Yeah. So I don't think they were necessarily trying to close the gap. They were trying to win, yeah. you know, these states. Whereas, and then, you know, they should have sent her to Wisconsin, frankly, because yeah. Wisconsin, they hardly ever visited. Well, really. exactly. I think that leads us nicely on to a discussion of what is going on in the in the headline race. Well, we have 10 days to go, 10 days left before this is all over. It seems like they've been running for president for a lot longer. <laughs> for four than... years. <laughs> for yeah. four years, really. Yeah. As we said, it's been a relatively stable race in terms of polling. Biden's national lead increased to, to around, it's floating around 10% versus about 5 to 7% in the headline tipping point, so-called tipping point states. The national lead increased slightly following the first debate to around 7%, but generally for this entire cycle, at least since COVID-19, has been pretty stable. As we said, there's, there's heaps of competitive states ranging from the Midwest to the Sun Belt. Traditional red states in the South are now opening up for potential corridors for democratic victories. 
And I think we should just get straight into talking about it, Chern, do you think? Um, oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. So what are the dynamics of the race going on in the Midwest? And what's your impression of what's going on up there? Well, the Midwest was the region that gave Trump the presidency. He won't, I mean, yes, he helped Florida and all, but it was the Midwest that gave him 270. Pennsylvania yep. was the state that put him over the line. I wanted to ask you, you know, let's cast your mind back four years ago, which I'm not sure whether you would like to re- relive four years ago. It's okay. Oh. We've overcome the five stages <laughs> of grief. We've overcome. I thought it was seven, but anyway, <laughs> um, what was the point when you watched those 2016 results where you realized that Trump was going to become president? Because I'm sure as we both are, you know, we watch the statistics, we, we watch election night results, like we follow them closely. Yeah. What was that point when as we both went in, we, that we thought Clinton was going to win, that you realized that this was not going, this was not A, not going to plan and B, it was going to likely result in a Trump victory? Yeah, so I will let the listeners know that Chern did warn me he was going to ask this. So we had had a pre-conversation about this. For me, there were two things that made me think that Clinton wasn't performing as well as the polls expected. One of them was the length of time it was taking to declare results in Michigan and Pennsylvania, particularly Wisconsin, slightly different, which I think we'll talk about later on. But the, the length of time it was taking to declare results was alarming because if Clinton was going to be performing in line with the polls going in, those are states that she should have wrapped up relatively quickly. She should have had seven, eight point leads in those states and, and she didn't. Um, and the second thing was when we realized quite early on in the night that North Carolina was not even remotely competitive. And the state just north of it, Virginia, was pretty competitive. Um, and this was a camp, and and Virginia was a state in which Trump campaigned from October didn't bother putting money in. No, because Virginia, they don't forget this was Tim Kaine's, who was Clinton's vice president, nominee's home state. Yeah, and Virginia was very much competitive on election night. I mean, the Clinton campaign, I think, narrowly edged it out in the end. It's five points in yeah, the end. But five points is a lot closer than Virginia should have been. Uh, it certainly is, and it's a lot, it's closer, a lot than closer than it is going to be this, time. Yeah, this time, exactly. time round. Because I mean, both both sides. I mean, the the, yeah. the camp the Trump campaign are not, the only the the only where I I did find funny where the only money they put into Virginia was to actually capture the DC market, largely because I suspect Donald wants to see a few of his advertisements on television. But you know, DC is good. The DC area is Democrats as Democrat can be. But it is interesting you talk about Michigan and Pennsylvania because there were five states that switched from red to blue in that election. Um, and I think we, we, okay, will you agree that three of them, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, are battleground states and very much Democratic favored at this moment, whereas Ohio and Iowa are reach states, as we call it, as it is not necessary to get the Democrats at 270, but it's very much in play as well. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, yeah. And actually, Iowa has been a late surge, would you agree? I, I did. It wasn't really on my radar for this cycle, um, for states I was going oh, to oh, take oh, close certainly. attention to. Um, but certainly. in recent polls, on the Senate level and the presidential level, the Democrats seem to be quite competitive there. Well, uh, just a note on the Senate level, it is worth pointing out that a non-partisan crystal ball put the Iowa Senate as lean Democrat before North Carolina. Now, I think that's largely because they're waiting to see 
anything more happens with Carl Cunningham because apparently a second woman has come forward. Now, one will indicate carelessness, two indicates a pattern. Although then again, Donald Trump is president of the United States. So maybe um, maybe that won't be such a big thing. But it's worth noting that, whereas, um, whereas that, on the Senate side, there was a recent New York Times Siena poll, and the reason why we're talking about that was they predicted very well that what happens when it happened in 2018 in the House and Senate put Joni Ernst one point ahead. That's the first poll in which put the Republican candidate one ahead of the Democrat candidate. But at the presidential level, Biden was winning by three points. Now, that is astonishing for this reason. Is that Clinton, if you look at what happened, is that Obama won Iowa by five points. And that swung out of the five Midwest states we talked about that went from red to blue. That was the one that swung the heaviest because it voted, of the five, it voted, uh, the margin it voted for Donald Trump was the biggest at nearly nine points. And if you look at the state itself, now obviously, um, counties, the number of counties you win is not indicative of how you win because it's largely the case where Democrats are, do well in cities, Republicans do well in the rural areas, and obviously the cities are in one county and the rurals are you know, in the rest. But it was indicative that if you look at eastern Ohio, in particular, uh, Iowa in particular, there's a complete switch from red to blue. And Clinton only won five counties in Iowa in 2016, compared to Obama winning 38. So there was a big collapse, particularly in eastern Iowa, which is full of these rural, white, working-class people that so, that, as we turned out, didn't like Clinton. But maybe I'm much more open to Biden, you think? Because yeah, Iowa's very white. It seems so. And I think, as well, that this idea of some... I, I think Iowa, because it's so white, is, is indicative that but Biden is traveling better among white working class people. Absolutely. Yeah. But that tells you only one story of what happened in the Midwest, isn't it? Because the other story was that there was a fall in non-white turnout, um, particularly amongst um, blacks as well. Mm -hmm. And that is most seen in Michigan. Now, Michigan, as I'm sure you know, is a state which comprises a lower peninsula and an upper peninsula. And the analysis done that if you take away the upper peninsula, Clinton would have won Michigan. She only won, lost about 10,000 votes or 0.2%. And that was largely because in Wayne County, now Wayne County is home to Detroit, which is the biggest city. Um, and that saw a six-point drop in Democrats' turnout. And largely as well, well more importantly, 75,000 less voters voted Democrat in Wayne County, in this one county compared to 2012. And the margin is only 10,000. You know, if they had turned out in Mich in the Blacks in uh, Detroit, they would have gotten Michigan. Mm -hmm. And yes, you know, so you could explain some of it as a natural fall off as, you know, Obama was the first Black president. But still, the, the first sign of me Michigan was in play was, I remember the night before the election, Clinton held a rally in Detroit. And I was thinking, why are we holding a rally in Detroit? You know, Michigan's supposed to be, is some, are we seeing something that we're not supposed to see? That was something to warn about. And of course, Michigan is home to Macomb County, which is just to the Northeast. And that is home to the Reagan Democrats. Those Democrats in the 80s, which swung, working class Democrats, it swung from Democrat to Republican and coined this term that Trump seemed to do very well in. Why do you think these voters have turned off Trump, you reckon? I think part of it comes from a character assessment. Um, because even amongst quite establishment Republicans, they're, they're having a problem with the way Trump conducts his presidency. 
I also think it's got a lot to do with Biden as a tolerable Democrat for many Republicans, even the like Reagan Republicans. He's just uh, a tolerable option for these people in the way that Clinton just w- was not. Why do you think that is? Why, why is he more tolerable to these rural white working class that have come back? I mean, because he himself grew up in that environment. I, as we as we're about to talk about in a bit when we talk about Pennsylvania, he's labeled the boy from Scranton. He talks about his upper Midwest roots, his work, his rural roots, his working class suburban roots. Um, you often say he was a poor senator he, in in the United States yeah, Senate. Yeah, exactly. And there's the story of him traveling back on Amtrak every day. So I, I think he's a much more palatable figure to them because he is he, he is one of them. I, I, I agree with that. I think they crafted the message better suited to the Midwest this time around. Mm-hmm. And I think as well that, you know, and we're going to talk about the South, where Clinton decided to try and flip, go for a bigger victory and ignored Wisconsin, which is a question really of arrogance. Uh, the Clinton campaign did not visit Wisconsin once during 2016, um, which was pointed out many times by the Democrats after they lost. Um, and Biden, okay, he gave his speech from Delaware, but symbolically held his 2020 convention there. So that's a, a nod to the fact that, you know, this, this, this Wisconsin is a state in which the Democrats, you know, actually had to put work in. The, the, the problem is, though, don't you agree Wisconsin on paper seemed a tougher nut to crack? Because we, we both remember the 2018 governor race was very tight. Mm-hmm. It's called the Wow Counties because they're named for the three counties surrounding Milwaukee, which is the biggest city. Yeah. And they are still quite ruby red. Yeah, I remember to... quite early on in this cycle, I mean, during the primary season, you and I had conversations about what we thought was the most likely uh, of the three headline Midwest states to be still a Republican state. And we said Wisconsin without really even thinking about it. Whereas actually, barring Michigan, which seems to be almost, I would call it as extremely likely to go to the Democrats in this well, cycle. Well, it's been pointed out a few times that the Trump campaign is not spending money in exactly. Michigan, which um, is an indicator that their thing is lost. They can get to 270 without Michigan, though, and yes. that is key. Yes, but as we were saying, Wisconsin certainly was more likely to be a Republican state in our eyes than Pennsylvania, and in the polling, that's just not transpiring at all. Why, why do you think this is? I think, to be honest, I think finally, it took a while, but I do wonder whether um, the the wild counties which you talked about, which were resilient in 16 and 18, finally cr- will be cracked this election. Because the big swing from 2008, where Obama won Wisconsin by a like, uh, double-digit margin, was a huge shift in northern Wisconsin, which if you look at the picture of, the, of, of how red, of how blue the area is and now how red, that is the key. I wonder whether in this election we're finally seeing the collapse of Republican support around Milwaukee and around Cleveland, which is why I think Ohio has suddenly... We all thought, I remember, it's the same thing for Ohio, but Wisconsin was starting from a slightly lower base for the Republicans. In fact, they only won it by 0.7%. Whereas Ohio, they won it quite quite handsomely, actually, by five points. Sorry, they won Ohio by eight points, actually. As a result, you know, they had less play in, in Wisconsin. But both states have seen a collapse in support among the suburbs, you know, in Lake County and Ohio and the Wow counties. It took a bit later, 
but that's my guess. I have to say, I think it's a, I think it's a game of the suburbs. Yeah. But let's be honest. All all these are immaterial because Wisconsin has ten electoral votes, the most important, and the one that is on the five thirty eight tipping point. In other words, the state most likely to decide this election is Pennsylvania.、Mm-hmm. Now, one thing which puzzled us for a long time is the fact that. Pennsylvania, for many years in 2008, was often thought to be the bluest of the battleground states. In other words, of all the states that could decide the election, that was probably the most democratic one. However, in this election, it seems to be much harder. The polls have been the margin in Pennsylvania seems to be less kind to Biden, despite the fact he is the boy from Scranton, you know, northeast Pennsylvania, which swung very heavily against a working class area that swung very heavily against Hillary Clinton four years ago. It seems to be a lot more sticky. Any thoughts about why? I mean, the Trump campaign and the Republican Party more widely certainly seem to think that this has something to do with the energy industry in Pennsylvania, in particular, which is why Trump and his campaign seem to be pushing the fracking issue so strongly. Because they certainly, whether it's data driven or just instinct driven, seem to believe that this is the way to win Pennsylvania. Um, so I don't know if you think that that plays a role, or what. What else have you found out in digging down? I think that definitely is something. But it's interesting to me how do these people it's like a culture issue? You you know what I mean? In the U.S., it's cultural cleavage. Oil and gas is not a cultural issue; it's an economic issue. So that、yeah. so that's something I think I would like to say. I I do wonder though because the Apalaga region, which is this region that stretches from Kentucky, and it actually reaches into Pennsylvania. And it doesn't touch Wisconsin or Ohio. I wonder whether there's something within this region, this region that goes from the Kentucky all the way, that is preventing the dem- that is caused that is shifted further away from the Democrats. We saw this, particularly in Southwest Pennsylvania as well. There must be the 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 current theme of suburbs moving to the Democrats must be counterbalanced by something. If Pennsylvania is still relatively close-ish. It must means that these people in this app in this region must have shifted to the right、mm-hmm. to counterbalance it. So that's my only theory, to be honest. And it's not a, it's not in the grand scheme of the U.S. It's not a particularly diverse state, is it, Pennsylvania? Well, Pennsylvania is、uh, Philadelphia. So Pennsylvania is often described as a microcosm of America because you have Philadelphia, which is very East Coast-like, and the surrounding counties like、uh, Lancaster County and Chester County, which is made of the suburbs of Philadelphia, very much the Democrats' hope. Because that those are where a lot of college-educated、um, white people who have totally been turned on by Trump, they are moving leftwards, and that powered the big victories for the governor and Tom Wolf and the senator Bob Casey in 2018.、Mm-hmm. Um, the middle bit is often described as close, closely resembles Alabama, so the middle of、uh, Pennsylvania. So it's very ruby red, and the western portion, which Pittsburgh, is very Midwest-like. Mm-hmm. So that's why Pennsylvania is seen as the ultimate swing state, where because、right. it combines elements of the South, the Midwest, and the, the East Coast all in one state, and it's twenty electoral votes. It's quite a lot, actually. But that being said, the five thirty-eight currently says that the Democrats have an eighty percent chance of get a winning Pennsylvania. Now, why do we use five thirty-eight? Is that yes, they did say Clinton would get seventy percent likelihood of winning the presidency, but that. Was a lot lower than a lot of the other polls would suggest,、um, and other models were suggesting in twenty sixteen. Yeah, and I think we can both agree that this race will probably be decided in the Midwest. Do you think? 
it will decide whether Democrats will get 270. But it's very likely, though, that the path to get beyond 270 doesn't really lie in the Midwest, doesn't it? No, I think one of the most fascinating things about this election, particularly from a Democratic perspective, is that Biden has a lot of routes to 270. Most of them go through the Midwest, but actually the Democrats are performing much stronger in the South than the Clinton campaign was. Um, And there are a lot more Southern states, I think, on the radar this time. Um, I mean, some of the ones that are seen as the most competitive are Arizona, Florida, North Carolina. And then what we would describe as reach states would be Georgia and Texas. Do you agree? Yep, I agree with that. But then again, the Clinton campaign tried in 2016 in these states as well. They did indeed. They did indeed. But Trump's Trump's numbers seem to have fallen in these states and Biden seems to be performing better than Clinton was. His performance varies across these states in, in recent polling. The Florida example, which I'm going to talk about in a bit, has been fairly stable with Biden maintaining a low single digits lead. Arizona has probably been surprisingly, the most democratic leaning of these southern states, which who would have thought that four years ago? Well, this interesting stat I read about Arizona is that from 1948, which is quite a long time ago, to now, it's only voted Democrat once, which is in 1996, the year I was born. So the fact that of these, it is the most likely to turn Democrat is mind-blowing really yeah and it may uh, may well end up as we said last week after this cycle having given its electoral college votes to joe biden have two democratic senators and a majority of their house delegation democrat it's had quite the transformation and then georgia in recent weeks has served surged into prominence um and we talked a bit about this on the senate level last week but the fact that Georgia now is labelled as fifty-fifty, and a lot, and mo- most of the recent polls have had Biden with a low single-digit lead there, actually, or at least tied, um, is is particularly interesting. So I'm going to talk first about the reach states, Georgia and Texas, and then come on to the more swing states in a bit a bit later on. In 2016, Trump had a five-point lead in Georgia in the results and a nine-point lead in Texas. And in both of these states, it seems that the Democrats have turned this around to seriously put them on the map. I think a lot of this comes from the fact that their national lead is so so significant that you're going to be putting a lot of places on the map that weren't on the map in 2016 just by the nature of having a 10-point national lead. But I think there are some demographic factors at play. Would, would you agree, Chern? I I agree. I think it's the same thing like we saw in um, in the Midwest, where black turnout I think is was problematic for the Democrats in the South, and of of course the sub suburban shift. But the thing I'm curious about is that the big thing in 2016 was third party votes, mm-hmm. because actually the Republican share of the vote went up a little bit. I mean, one or two points, but it was the Democratic share of the vote that really fell, and a lot of them I didn't vote or vote third party. Now, in this election, it seemed very much to me in the Midwest that it was the Democrat vote that has gone up rather than taking votes of the Republicans. Do you notice that in the South? Oh, absolutely. We've noticed that in the South. I mean, one statistic I found, it's not exclusive to 2020, but I think demonstrates a wider thing that's going on here, is that in Georgia, the increase in black voter registration 
has gone from them being 25% of registered voters in 2000 to being 33% of registered voters just before the 2018 midterms, which is the biggest increase in the percentage of registered voters of in, in the US, um, which has been like the pet project of Stacey Abrams since since losing the governor race in 2018. But I think demonstrates the wider thing that's going on in states like Georgia, where the, there's a real effort to try and mobilise black turnout in response to 2016. And I think we've I think we've seen it actually happening. Um, I've, I've seen a lot of pictures of early voting on polling stations, which I know is not a scientific s- sample. But well, I, if you're based on crowd sizes, Bernie Sanders would have won the 2020 pri- well, Democratic this is, primary. This is very true. But I think demonstrates a wider thing that's going on with an attempt to increase turnout, an attempt to make sure people are voting early or voting by mail, and just making sure that people have actually cast their ballots, because this was the big problem for the Clinton campaign in 2016. Can I just say, I feel like a big sense of deja vu, because in a sense that Georgia might increase its black re- registration from the remarkable system, well done to Stacey Abrams. But what happened? She's, still, she's, not, she's not a Georgia governor, is she? No, but the margins were certainly significantly reduced. And if, for the Democrats' perspective, that 2018 was the stepping stone to 2020, is the 2020 presidential election the time when Georgia finally turns blue? Well, it remains to be seen. But I, I just hope that Georgia doesn't become North Carolina in the sense that every election we think that this is the time, this is the election, this is the election, this is the election. And Texas is going to be like this, and I'm pretty sure you're going, we're going to talk about Texas in a bit, where this is the election is going to turn blue, this is the election is going to turn blue. And we're getting to the point where is this the election where Georgia turns blue? And inevitably, it has failed consistently. So I'm just a little bit nervous about whether we can, and it is tight, you know, 50-50, it's line ball. But it is definitely, I will grant that it's moving the Democrats' favor. And that's largely, I think, because of the Atlanta suburbs. Growing, yeah. more diverse, more college educated, all recipes in which will pose problems for the Republicans. I think in Georgia as well, the rural whites have balanced it, which is probably what saved Brian Governor Kemp in 2018 in his governor race against Stacey Abrams. But whether that is enough to counter the suburbs is the million dollar question, isn't it? Yeah, we'll have to wait and see in 10 days time. It's certainly a race I'll be keeping my eye on. Um, The other reach state that I wanted to briefly touch on, although as we both, I think, agree, I think Texas is a step too far in this cycle. Yeah. Unless we're looking at a landslide scenario. I think Texas is a step too far. However, we talked a bit earlier on about the increase in early voting. I found a statistic that in Texas early voting, 75% of the 2016 turnout in Texas have already voted. So 75% wow. of the overall electorate in 2016 have cast this is their throughout the entire state? The statewide, yeah. We're going in for a huge turnout. I don't know why Monmouth does these low turnout model polls yeah. if you get statistics like this. And Texas, that is the highest or... I think, apart from the the states that are operating basically all mail-in ballots, is the highest of of 
the proportion of 2016 electorate that have voted already, but I just think that's quite staggering. Maybe there's something going on in Texas that has not registered with us yet. I still think it's a step too far, but it's it's certainly an illustration of the wider trends going on, considering that the proportion of early voters who are Democrat versus Republican is massively in the Democrats' favour in terms of the, the numbers voting by mail or voting early um, with, with their partisan registration. But still, I thought that was a remarkable statistic. Um, I think, as you say, we're in for quite a high turnout election. The one thing I'm curious to find out, because 75% seems like a massive figure, but the problem with Democrats is, is that in particularly particularly in midterms, because turnout tends to drop, is that along the border with Mexico, are a lot of Hispanics, quite conservative, because they're Catholic, who don't vote. Now, are they showing the same early voting intentions as to, let, let's say, Austin or Denver, the Denver subject or the Houston suburbs? That, to me, probably, because that was the only area in which Beto O'Rourke in 2018 outpaced Hillary Clinton all over the state, apart from the states along the border. Now, some of it could be Ted Cruz, who is a Latin, um, Latino himself, could have a special appeal to this. But I would, if I were the Democrats, if I want to push for Texas, I would look at those border communities and make yeah. sure they turn out to vote, because that is really interesting. Yeah, I'm, but, I'm quite keen to move on from Texas in a minute, but I did notice this week that Beto O'Rourke and Julian Castro have been making noise about how they think that the Biden campaign has neglected Texas because they, in their professional opinion, think that Texas was a state that Biden could have put more energy in, put more funds in, and could have wrapped up this election. The problem ago. is, though, Texas is a huge state. It's huge. It is, and well, and it's, the, expensive it's the second state. largest electoral vote prize on the map. Exactly. And that's why Democrats are so keen about Texas, because you have California 55 and Texas with 38. You know, together, that's nearly 100. If you can get Texas in the blue column, it will be very difficult for Republicans to win elections without getting it back. Well, that's being said, though, although maybe the price is getting closer because it's taken a seven, a eight, seven to 10 point Biden lead to put Ohio and Iowa at 50-50. This is true. You know, in the next election, if the margin at the national level tightens or the Republicans nominate another candidate and it's within three, four points, you're not going to look at Ohio and Iowa being in play. It's only in play because of the large anti-Trump swing, isn't it? Yeah. And the one thing that unites Texas with the most ultimate swing states is Hispanics, which is an area in which the Biden campaign is seen as a weakness in which is problematic in Florida, isn't it? It's very problematic in Florida. And Florida, let's not forget, is alongside Pennsylvania, as you said earlier, the ultimate swing state. Since 1964, the candidate who has won Florida has won the White House on every single occasion except 1992. So Florida is important. Um, and I think the Trump campaign has actually openly admitted to a certain extent that without Florida, they don't really see a path. Well, to it's the White 29 House. electoral votes. It's 29 votes. electoral votes. It's huge. But I think it's one of the most interesting ones to look at from a democratic perspective. Because whilst Biden's lead has gone from 7 to 10, his margins in the polls in Florida compared to Hillary Clinton's in 2016, are, are no different. He's leading by low single digits. 
And it seems to be a really difficult state for the Biden campaign to, to get a significant amount of momentum. It's an interesting state to look at demo, demographically because it's got quite a high proportion of seniors, which is a group that we can both agree that Biden is outpacing Hillary Clinton massively and is seen as one of the reasons why he's been able to develop this such significant national lead because he's performing well among senior citizens. It's also quite a diverse state ethnically. Now, it does have a large proportion of Cuban-Americans, which tend to be more conservative. But what, what do you think is going on in Florida? Because it's, it's an enigma to me, really. Well, first of all, the, Dem- the Florida Democratic Party is a problem, actually. It, I, I read this amazing statistic. You know, we've, we've seen Democrats raise money like, you know, they have a money printing machine in their backyard. But the Florida Democrats only have 125000 in the bank. Wow. That's it. For such a large state. For such a large state, that is nothing. Now that is, so the infrastructure in Florida is very weak. I think that's the first thing to say. And I think that's a, it's a stat that I still remember three weeks or three weeks later. But to me, I think the Hispanic things cannot be overstated. I think it's the, the Republicans are very efficient at turning out these voters in uh, Miami-Dade. And, you know, Miami-Dade and Broward are big Democratic strongholds. But these conservative Hispanics, I think, in particular what Obama did with normalizing relations, I wonder how much that is still impacting them five years later. And don't forget as well, is that in the northeast of Florida, the Democrat vote has really fallen down in the panhandle bit, the bit that closes an hour later, that are close to Alabama. They are, they are more similar to Alabama next door than to f- the rest of the state. Yeah. And that was what killed Bill Nelson in the end. Okay, yeah. it was flawed ballot design as well in Broward County that also denied him the win. But the, those margins have really moved rightwards. And that's probably why that the Republicans have managed to do. And we've been here before in 2018. The governor yeah, I was, going was so to say, tight. Speaking of Bill Nelson, maybe 2018 should have been an alarm bell for the Democratic Party because even in a significant blue wave year on the House level, at least, Florida was impossible for them. Um, they, they just they lost the governor race. They lost their incumbent senator. And despite the fact that states like Arizona... Texas wasn't a win, Georgia wasn't a win, but they certainly moved in the democratic direction. Florida just didn't. It was quite the opposite. In Florida, the, the main battleground of the state is known as the I-4 corridor. In other words, it's a, it's a highway that kind of goes through Orlando in the middle. Now in 2018, the Democrats did actually quite well in, in, in some of these places. So, and yet they still lost. So that means, and I think that's indicative of the two things. One, the, the Alabama the panhandle area and the, the republicans ability in broward and miami day to find these conservative republicans um conservative hispanics and turn them out to vote but um it will be very interesting though because like you said you know florida counts its votes very early and very efficiently yeah. so we know quite early on where florida is going in terms of of, of it. And I, and I think I wouldn't comment this on election night, and I think, and I'm sure you would agree as well, is that when the first few percent come in, there will likely be the early vote. So we're likely to see the Democrats go to a massive lead. And then in states like this, when the day, early day, when the on the day votes get counted mm-hmm. and they skew heavy Republican, 
they their lead start to whittle down, whittle down, whittle down, whittle down. We saw this in twenty eighteen, and and in particular in Florida, when when the Panhandle's area comes in, that pushed them over the edge. And Miami Dade and Broward, the larger booths that tend to come in, wasn't enough to compensate, is it? No, um, and I was going to mention this actually that, and the same applies to North Carolina, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a second briefly. Um, is that Florida and North Carolina have relatively reliable counts in terms of getting results in quite quickly because they count mail-in ballots as they arrive, they count early voting before before election night or at least through election night. But one state that definitely doesn't do that, which is actually, I don't like to have favourites, but it's definitely my favourite state in this cycle is Arizona, which um, we talked a bit about earlier. Arizona, and one statistic that I found earlier today, actually, is that versus 2018, the Democrats actually have a lead on mail-in ballots. Um, Whereas what had happened last time in 2018 was that the Republicans had a lead on mail-in ballots, which is why the result was so uncertain for so long. Um, But the Democrats have a lead in mail-in ballots, which are counted before election day. So they come in as a bulk. So it might be the case that Biden has quite a significant lead also in Arizona on election night. And it'll be interesting to see how that varies as days goes on. I think what's even more important in Arizona is that they're used to voting by mail. This is yes. because because Arizona, because now because of COVID, uh, the Democrats early on tried to get a lot of people to vote by mail. Yeah. Now in places like Arizona, they know how to do vote by mail. Yeah, They've always done it. Yeah. And Nevada does Colorado. it. Colorado. However, in Pennsylvania, who have never tried voting by mail before, there's a real concern about naked ballots where yes. you basically have to put your ballot in a second envelope, which is signed, in order for your vote to be counted. Now, I see that as a potential recipe for disaster. But yes, I agree that in Arizona, there is that. Now, that's very interesting. Arizona, as we talked about last week, it's all down to Maricona County. Yeah. It counts for over 50% of the state. Now, I read somewhere that over a million people have already voted in Maricona County. Now, that's amazing. Wow. And it's going to be do that's that county is going to be do or die, given it accounts for more than 50%. And and the fact that it's the suburbs that are falling down, and you know, it's it contains a large city. If I was a Republican, I'd be quite worried about Arizona. Very much so. And even in, in the local dimension in Arizona, I know we've seen Cindy McCain endorsed Biden, uh, Mark Kelly. You cannot underestimate the Cindy McCain not. brand name, particularly amongst suburban Republicans yeah. in that state. Yeah, the McCain Ma- family is kind of like God in that state. Yeah, and Mark Kelly's running an effective Senate campaign. So in terms of the, the ongoing narrative locally in Arizona, the Democrats are just everywhere. They are all over the media. It's It's almost looking like it's going to be a blue state in the short term, if they manage to crack it on election night in two weeks' time. But as I said, I, I think what is going on in Arizona is one of the most fascinating things in, in the South in terms of its transformation in four years. Well, what, what is good about Arizona is that it can quite easily compensate for uh, Wisconsin. Precisely. Or, uh, is, or one of those... 11 electoral votes. 11 electoral votes. It is very useful. It's not as big as Ohio. But in the longer term, don't forget, Ohio has been losing electoral votes. It's been losing population. Yeah. Rather, well, they've been gaining at a lesser rate compared to Arizona. So in the longer term, it could be an almost one-to-one swap, which could be quite useful, actually. But I noticed the last swing state we haven't really talked about in the South is North Carolina, isn't it? Indeed. And it was the state that I said 
changed my mind on what was going on in 2016. I forgot to mention that my um my oh, yes, my thing that I that that caused me to have second thoughts was the Ohio margin, which is why I wanted to bring it up so early. It was eight points, and that was declared so early tonight. I was like, that was when I realized, okay, things are not going right. And then when I looked at Pennsylvania, I realized. And when I saw how close it was, and in my head, once you put Ohio and Pennsylvania in the Republican column, you could see the power of the two seventy coming quite close, coming coming together, really. Yeah, a couple of months ago, I would have described North Carolina for the Biden campaign as a reach state. Would you agree? I think those expectations were they were leading to the summer, but we all expected that to narrow. Yeah, but... whereas actually it's stabilized, and in some instances. Expanded alongside Cal Cunningham's lead over Tom Tillis in the Senate side. Well, well, definitely, I think they're doing better on the Senate side. But according to five thirty eight, North Carolina leading by three, which is at the point in which is just beyond margin of error yeah. terms, isn't it? Just yeah, I think it wouldn't surprise me if North Carolina is not a state that ends up in Biden's column on election night. But it's still, I think, it illustrates quite well how this campaign has gone that North Carolina has gone from being uh, a state that Biden could hope to just about tip it over the edge to one that they see firmly within their sights on their path to 270 and way beyond. I would say, though, the Democrats tried hard in 12 and 16, though, in North Carolina. So whether whether they'll be third time lucky after 2008, which could argue was a unique election for the Democrats, um, will be very interesting. North Carolina is very interesting because it's home to the research triangle as well. So it's home to quite a lot of college-educated people. Mm-hmm. But then again, if Republicans can maintain it, there must be a counterbalance. And as always, as we describe some of these states, it must be the rural east and the rural west that must have gone away from the from the Democrats. Must be, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Particularly think, the east and North Carolina, right? Yeah, I think you're probably right. As as we've talked about with many of these states today. A lot of the things at play in the states are, are national things at play. I know we talk tentatively about national leads not being particularly important, but the national behaviour of certain demographics is important, and and I think is an overarching theme in many of these swing states. Exactly, you know that's why there's so much focus on how these Obama Trump voters are going to behave. Because mm-hmm. I hate to say it, but there's a high likelihood they'll behave as a cohort. In other words, move together in a certain way. Now, they might do it to various extent in various swing states. And as I hinted, as we hinted before, is that because some of the Rep- Pennsylvania in particular in, might be harder to crack because of some of the Appalachia characteristics, and you know, the middle Pennsylvania be hard to crack. But they're likely to move together as a block, don't you think? Or black turnout is likely to go through the roof as across all states, isn't it? I think so. I think so. And that's something I'm definitely going to be keeping a close eye on on election night, because I think it will have a large impact on number one, who wins the election and number two, by how much. Um, So which state will you be looking most closely to on election night then? I think and it links to what we talked about last week. I'll be paying very close attention to Georgia um, because it has two Senate races and it's and it's a swing state that I think is one that in the next 10 days, will very much monitor whether this is going to be quite a significant victory for Biden or whether things are going to be quite close. I think what goes on in Georgia, polling-wise, will help us in that regard. But Pennsylvania, as the tipping point state, 
um, will of course be one that everyone will be watching. We're coming to the home stretch, isn't it? And I think next week is a good chance to reflect on what has been a quite a crazy election night, election, don't you think? Absolutely. So I think that leads us nicely on to the end so of this it. edition. Yeah, it is the end of the our third episode of Ballot to talk about. Join us again next week as we intend to find out what is happening in the world of politics, where we will provide you with an update of what happened in British Columbia and Queensland. And we're going to reflect on what has been probably one of the most high, amazing and inconsequential US elections in we certainly can remember. You can follow us on Twitter at, at ballot underscore talk. Leave us a rating or review or tell your friends about us. Until next week, see you again soon. Talk to you again next week, Sam. See you later.